Psalm 95. We are beginning this morning a new series on the book of Psalms. You may or may not know that the book of Psalms is a collection of poetic works, prayers, as well as songs that were written not as art so much as expressions of faith from the heart of believers in ancient Israel. And the Psalms, though, don't just serve them well or serve them well. They also serve us well because within the Psalms, what we see is not just teaching about who God is, but also instruction as to how we are to relate to him, how we are to think about God, how we are to feel about God in all circumstances of life. It's very easy when things are going to well to think happy thoughts of God and to, to think that we love him dearly. But, but what do you do when the wheels fall off? What do you do when, when life takes a tragic turn? Then how do you feel about God? The Psalms tell us how to do that. They tell us how to think about Him and how to feel about Him in both the pain and the pleasure of life. They show us that right thinking and right beliefs are to be connected with right feelings. And in fact, true feelings will flow out of true belief. And this makes the Psalms are uh, very powerful because what we have then is not just genuine expressions of God's people, but because it's in the Bible, we know this is exactly what God wants us to have. It's also God's Word. And so uh, they come to us, not only rooted in real historical praise and thanksgiving and confession and repentance and joy and sorrow, but also as the perfect words of the living God for building us up in our faith and showing us how to live out a life of righteousness. So have you ever wondered, how do you, how do you talk to God? How do you express your feelings to God when you feel lonely or when you feel love or sorrow or regret or shame or exaltation or fear or anger or delight or grief or joy or when you're heartbroken or in awe, when there is depression or pain or you have hope? Psalms show us all of those things because as many have observed, there is hardly any, if not any, uh, expression of the human heart that is not found in the Psalms. And we see not just how the people respond to God, but we see the God to whom they are responding. God is held up as our shepherd, our rock, our shield, a judge and our refuge, a fortress, an avenger, our creator, deliverer, our healer, protector, our provider, redeemer, and above all, our great king who rules not over, over our lives, but over the entire universe. And so in the words of Martin Luther, the Psalms become then a mini-Bible, uh, pulling together all the great themes of theology found in the rest of the Scriptures, and most importantly, ultimately pointing to Christ. And this is important for us because this series of the Psalms obviously is not beginning in Psalm 1, and it will not go through all the Psalms, or rather just a, a select few and they are, we have picked ones that specifically help us to most clearly see the coming of Christ, that help us point the way to our Savior King, Jesus. And so with that as an introduction, we want to begin this morning with Psalm 95. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today. 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, for they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. May God bless the reading of his word. This psalm is very much about showing us the way to worship, and that's what we want to see this morning. And we begin by seeing the call to worship. The call to worship. We see this in verses 1 and 2. The psalm begins, as many psalms do, uh, issuing a call to worship that is a summons for Israel, for the people of God, to do what the people of God should do, namely, worship their God, worship the Lord their King. And in looking at this call to worship, we can also see something about worship itself. In other words, in calling the people to worship, the psalmist says, this is how you should worship. Okay? So three things stand out about how we should worship. First, we should worship together. We should worship together. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Uh, This is not just about the individual. This is about collectively the people of God gathering together, much as we have done this morning, in order to give praise and worship to the living God. Can you praise God alone? Can you worship Him alone? Just you and Him? Absolutely, of course. I hope you do that during the week. Nevertheless, that individual worship with God is not to the exclusion of the gathered corporate worship of God's people. Both are good and, in fact, are necessary in the totality of the picture we see from God. Worship is meant to take place when we are together as one body for a couple of reasons. First of all, it builds us up in our own faith. When I look out across here, and some of you I know very well, I know the struggles that you may be having, I know the sins that you may be dealing with, I know the circumstances of your life, and yet I see you standing and giving praise to the king, worshiping the God, that encourages me. Because it says you've not given up. You are continuing to fight the fight of faith, to live a life for the glory and honor of God. But more than that, not just for ourselves, but even for those that may come in from the outside, it shows what our priorities are about. If we come together and it was all just about us, we were talking about us and our lives and making much of us and our lives, that would show our priorities are out of order. But if when we come together and it's all about Him, if it's designed to exalt and lift up Him, to magnify Him, to honor Him, it shows we're not seeking to build a kingdom for ourselves, we're seeking to live for the kingdom of God. Secondly, though, we also see that we see that we should worship in song. We should worship together and we should worship in song. We are to make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Now, we find this throughout many of the Psalms, and we also find it in the New Testament. Paul makes clear that one of the ways we should teach and admonish one another is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says that in Colossians 3. Worshiping God certainly involves more than singing, but it's never less than that. Okay? It's never less than singing. So even when we go to our big state conventions and national conventions, you will often find uh, people who, who can't hear who are deaf. And what are they doing? They're not actually using their voices, but they are signing, they are attempting to sing uh, along with us in command of this scripture. Now, let's just be honest. Uh, 
not everyone sings as well as everybody else, right? I mean, how many times have you heard preachers make the joke that all it says is a joyful noise? It doesn't say a joyful melody, right? Uh, so something can be coming out uh, and God will be happy with it. And I know, uh, let's just be honest, uh, for, for most men, it doesn't appear to be very manly to be singing uh, songs, right? Unless it's maybe, you know, bad to the bone as you're driving down the car or something uh, on your Harley, okay? Uh, I, I don't know, but just consider uh, all of the great men of Scripture sang. After the deliverance of Egypt, uh, uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, what happens? Moses, on the spot apparently, composes this magnificent hymn and leads all of Israel in singing praise to God who has just delivered them. David, on, on the run for his life, uh, fighting out in, in, the, in the thick of battle up to his knees in blood. And what does he do? He composes and sings the very hymns that we have in the book. Jesus, the perfect man, the ultimate man, the night before he goes to the cross, gathers with his disciples and sings. You may come up with every reason imaginable not to sing, but I guarantee you I can come up with every reason to knock down your reason. God calls us to sing, and that's what we are to do in worship. But, but how, how does this singing happen? Well, this is the final thing that we see. We are to worship with joy and thanksgiving. We are to worship with joy and thanksgiving. You see, even if we're making a, a, just a noise, if we can't sing that well, if we cannot carry the tune in the bucket, okay, if our bucket has a big hole in it, the point is it's a joyful noise. We are to sing with thanksgiving. It is an issue of the heart. Now, to be honest, this whole thing of joy and thanksgiving can be easily derailed. Uh, if you were in church in the 90s, you may have been exposed. You may remember this thing that, that at the time and now we look back and called the worship wars. And it was all about what kind of music should we have in church. Should it be upbeat and contemporary? Should it be with, uh, just with the hymns? You know, should it be more formal? Should it be more informal? What should the feel of the service be like? And frankly, there was a lot of ink spilled uh, as people wrote about that, and there was much hot air blown as people talked about that, and there was much less love shown than there should have been about that. The reality is if we would have spent more time reading the Bible and worried less about what we just like, which is really what it came down to, is matters not of godliness but of preference most times, then probably something better would have come of the whole thing. The truth is, regardless of the kind of songs you sing, the worship of God is marked by joy and thanksgiving. Isn't that what it says? Let us make a joyful noise the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This, this attitude of the heart is, is supposed to be what comes from us. So even if you sing pitch perfect and there is not joy in that, if there is not thanksgiving to God in that, it's not really worship. It's just singing. Now we can argue, and we will later, that worship should be marked by more than just that, but it cannot be marked by less than that, joy and thanksgiving. It might be somber or subdued. It could be exuberant and loud. It doesn't matter. We're not talking about style. What we're talking about is an attitude of the heart that should be evident in our worship, a sense of joy and thanksgiving for the salvation that we have from God. And that leads us into the next few verses of the psalm, not just the call to worship where we see how we should worship, but also the psalmist explains why we should worship God. And so here, secondly, we see uh, the reasons for worship. The reasons for worship. <clears throat> the joy and thanks, thankfulness that we are to express is not supposed to be uh, some forced emotion. 
you know, if, if, you know, if you're in the midst of having a bad day, you would not want someone to just grab you by the scruff of the neck and say, I don't care, be happy. I mean, not going to happen, is it? And likewise, the psalmist doesn't expect us just to make ourselves be joyful, to make ourselves be thankful. Instead, he says, here are the good reasons you have for being joyful and thankful in your worship of God. First of all, we are to worship God as the creator. We are to worship God as the creator. There are many gods that were worshipped in the day that this psalm was written, even as there are many gods worshipped today. Uh, They might have been a little more obvious, though, then. You had temples and idols. You had an openness about the plurality of gods. No one would would mind telling you, "Here, here are the gods that I worship, and even showing you the little idols that he had. Today, however, people don't realize that money and power and fame are just as much false gods as Dagon, Molech, and Baal of the Old Testament. But they are. And so even today, it may be hidden, but we still worship all kinds of gods. And yet, despite all of these gods being worshipped, the psalmist declares that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, He is a great God and a great King above all gods. The Lord alone is the one true God. He alone is great and mighty and stands above every other false god. He is the mighty King. How do we know that? Well, we're told in verses 4 and 5, In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And his hands form the dry land. He has created all things. You, you had gods over all kinds of things in, in the ancient Near East when this psalm is being written. You had uh, gods of fertility, sometimes of people, sometimes of crops, sometimes both. You had gods over, established over a certain region, a certain country. But the psalmist says the Lord made everything. So there's not anything in creation, there's not any place you can go where, the, where God does not say, I am king over that because I made it. It's interesting here that he specifically mentions the sea. You know, many of the ancient peoples were, uh, frankly, scared to death of the open sea. Uh, They saw it as powerful and raging and completely unpredictable. In fact, one scholar says this, quote, To the heathen, the sea might represent a power even older than the gods, not conquered without a bitter struggle. It was something dangerous. It was something primordial in their mind. Now, with that as the background, I just love what the psalmist says in verse 5, just almost casually. The sea is his, for he made it. I mean, I mean imagine that. You know, you've got people that would be, wouldn't even want to go on a boat unless they also said prayers and brought enchantments and maybe a sacrifice overboard. And the psalmist just casually says he's made everything, and the sea, that's his too. He made it. I mean, that's an amazing statement for the day. But it's all telling us the Lord is great. He is mighty and powerful. He has created all things, even us. And so we should worship Him. More than that, though, we should also worship Him as our Savior. We should worship Him as Savior. Verse 6, So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Why? For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Verse 6 uses three verbs that all speak to the posture of worship. Sometimes the word worship uh, that we have in English comes from different Hebrew words. Uh, in Leviticus, you will see worship being used, uh, and the root really means it's a worship of service. It's, it's you doing something. Here, however, the word means to prostrate oneself, to, to lay down, face down in the dirt on the ground before someone who is greater than you. Adding to this, he also talks about bowing down and kneeling. The point is, we are to come humbly getting low before God. He he is greater than we are, and we come with reverence before Him. And we know that it is a privilege to worship God. 
It is a privilege not just to know Him, but to be known by Him. We come humbly declaring in word and deed the worth of God because we are His people. He is the shepherd king that has gathered us together. Remember, Israel didn't worship their God the way all the other nations worship God's. I mean, you may go into a different, a different region, a different city, and discover a new God and say, oh, that's cool. I could, use, I could use a little bit of that. I could use a little prosperity for my crops. So you, so you literally buy an image of this God, and you carry it back with you to your house, and you set it up, and you worship Him, and you hope that this God blesses your crops. That's not how Israel worshiped the Lord. The Lord called Israel to be His people. You'll remember, he promised their existence through Abraham. He used Joseph to preserve them through famine so the people would not die out. And then he allowed them to prosper in Egypt despite affliction. Even when they forgot him and became enslaved under Pharaoh, the Lord raised up Moses to redeem them out of that captivity, to bring them into the land he had promised their father Abraham. Thus, when Israel comes worshiping their God, it's not that they chose him to worship. He chose them to be his people to be the ones that were to worship Him. He chose them to be the sheep of His pasture. And so also with we, with us today. Christ has come as the Good Shepherd. He has redeemed us from the vilest enemy of them all, our own sinful hearts. He did this by dying for us under the judgment of God in our place. He is the Good Shepherd, He says, who lays down His life for the sheep. But Christ does more than just die for His people. He also comes back to life for his people. He was raised back to life, resurrected as a testimony both to his message and to his acceptability as the savior of humanity. God raised him up as a sign that he was the beloved son of God and he gave him, we were told in Matthew, authority over all things. And so as the one who stands now, King Jesus over all of creation, all the universe, every, every human life, every spiritual life in the heavenly places. He has authority. And therefore, he sends his Holy Spirit to be in his people so that they are not just free from the penalty of sin, the judgment of God, but also the power of sin. We can say no and pursue holiness. So when we worship God, just like Israel, but only more so now. We worship Him not just as Creator, but as our Savior. We remember what He has done for us in Jesus, and so rightly, humbly give Him praise. We've seen the call to worship. We see the reasons for worship. Finally, we see this, the response of worship. The response of worship. In the middle of verse 7, there is a clear shift in the psalm, both in tone and in content. The large call for the people of God to worship collectively now becomes a singular call to the individual. Not just us and our, now verse 7 says this, Today, if you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Suddenly in the midst of this exalted, even uplifting call to worship, there is a sobering reminder of the depravity of our own hearts. There is a sudden splash of cold water thrown across our souls. The reality of who we are is made clear to us. We are reminded of the modern day hymnist who wrote, Prone to wander, 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what, that's what the psalmist is saying. You are prone to wander. Don't let it happen. You remember what happened with our forefathers. So in the midst of this, this pointing to the majesty of the king to whom we should worship, the psalmist also points down to us and issues a warning against our own hearts. And he says this response of worship means first listening to God. It means listening to God. Today, as you gather to worship, if you hear the voice of God, don't act like our foolish forefathers. They said, we're ready to listen. Do you remember what they said? You remember that uh, after they had been redeemed from Egypt, uh, that they came to Mount Sinai and God said, uh, I, you know, if you will obey me and be my people, I will be your God. And what do they say? We will do anything you tell us to do, right? Isn't that what they said? And what happens? They get the Ten Commandments. And it's so, so amazing and, and life-threatening is the presence of God. They say, we can't handle this. Moses, you go up and get the rest of it. That's what he does. And then they get impatient. And they say, well, we want to hear. But guess what? They didn't want to hear. And Moses comes back down. And what does he find? They've broken all the commandments. And they, were just, they just said they would receive and listen to. They didn't listen to God. They didn't listen to his word. When we come together to worship, at least here at this body, the word stands at the center of everything that we do. We read it, we sing it, we pray it, and we hear it explained. Because this is essential to worshiping God, listening to him. But more than that, worship is more than just listening. We must also believe. We must also believe. The psalmist mentions Meribah and Massa, two words that mean dispute and testing in Hebrew but are also place names that summarize well the rebellious spirit of an entire generation in Israel. If you want to read the stories, look at Exodus 17, look at Numbers 20 for the details. But the basic point is this. There was a prevailing wicked heart among that generation because they heard the word of God and they refused to believe it. They they, they saw him bring the plagues. They saw him part the Red Sea. They saw him provide uh, quail and manna and lead them by a pillar of cloud and smoke. And yet... And yet they still refused to believe. When it all came to a head, they stood on the edge of the promised land. And the spies came back and they said, man, there's people, there's warriors in there. And there's fortified cities. And this is insane. How do we think we're going to go in there? And two guys said, Joshua and Caleb, man, let's do this thing. Look at this. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that God promised our father Abraham. This is for us. Let's go. And they said, no way. No way. And what did God say? I loathe that generation because they would not believe me. They saw my power. They saw my love. They saw my grace. And yet they still wouldn't believe. They heard the promise and they wouldn't believe. The result was that they were unable to enter the promised land. Now, if you're a regular attender or a member, I'm just curious, have you ever noticed the front of our weekly bulletin? Have you ever noticed that every single week, the scripture doesn't change? It's the same scripture on there. I know somebody has said, man, can you put a date or a different scripture? So why are the same things on there? Well, there's a history to that. There's a history to the reason why that's there. And it doesn't just start 50 years ago when this church started. It starts about 500 years ago. So just bear with me for a minute. It won't take that long, I promise. In the 1500s, like the rest of Europe, there was a reformation going on in England. And one of the, the leaders, if not the leader of that reformation, was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. And he formed what was essentially a more biblically faithful alternative to the, to the Catholic Church of his day. It was the Anglican Church, as it became known, the Church of England. 
And central to this new movement of the, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, was something called the prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer. Now, it wasn't so much a book of prayers. as It did contain prayers, but what it was was really a manual on how to conduct church life. And what it said was, this is how the worship service should run. This is what scripture you should read. This is when you should pray. This is what you should pray about. Uh, and then this is, this is how you conclude. This is how you take the Lord's Supper. This is what you do if there is a baptism to be performed. And what happened, although in the long run, uh, uh, you, know, you, you can't legislate Christianity, but what they said was they made it law, and, and for a while, people embraced it. They would actually meet every day. Every day before work, they would come to church. And what would they do? They would hear the Bible read, and they would pray, then they would go on to work. And then at the end of work in the evening, they would come to the church again. And what would they do? They would hear the Bible read, they would pray, then they would go home and live their lives. Now, why did they do that? Well, primarily because most of England was illiterate. They couldn't read. You couldn't hand them a Bible and say, here, go read this, you know, have daily devotions. Can't do it. So what they did was essentially have public devotions. And the way that the schedule ran, if you came every day, you would hear the entire Old Testament once in a year, the entire New Testament twice, and the Psalms 12 times. Or the Psalms completely every month. Now, first of all, can you just imagine if we did that today? Not even just America, but if just the church, if this church committed to reading the Bible every single day, so, that, so much so that we heard the Old Testament once, New Testament twice, Psalms 12 times, I imagine things might look a little different around here. I'm just saying. We'll leave that off for now. I'm just saying. But here's the thing. When you read the prayer book, every single service, every single day, it all starts the exact same way. You read the same passage of Scripture. You know what it is? Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Why? Why, why would Cramner do this? I mean, they've already heard Psalm 95 12 times. They have to hear it another time, every single time. Why? Because here's what Cramner knew. When these people gathered together to hear the word of God, there was not just a magnificent declaration of the God they were about to hear from, but there was also a warning. God is about to speak through his word, and you dare not ignore him. You must believe the promise if you want to experience salvation. We're about to open up the book. In fact, the, the, the book that has just most freshly been translated into English, never before in the history of the world. It was always in Latin. And now we have it in our own language. And it's about to be proclaimed to you. And it's not just a book, it's the Word of God. So don't harden your hearts. Listen, believe, and obey. That's what Cranmer was seeking to do. That's why, that's why every single Every single time we gather together on a Sunday, if we were to open up Psalm 95 and see the context of those two verses that are there, we would realize we are coming to hear the word of the living God, not just the words of a man or men. Therefore, we dare not refuse to listen. We must hear and believe and obey. Otherwise, we become no better than that generation that God loathed. We become no better than the people that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 15 who said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If, if we come and we, we can sing all kinds of praise, we, we can play up here, we can on the stage, we can sing pitch perfect in the pew, but if we are not prepared to hear the word of God and believe it, it doesn't matter what's come out of our lips, our hearts are far from the living God. Now, that was the message to Israel, those saved by God through Moses, who gave them the law through Moses. What about ourselves? 
Well, if we read this, even as we've said, there are some immediate and obvious implications that just carry right over into our hearts as new covenant believers. But the book of Hebrews presses in even further. And he says, this psalm, this psalm, it does not just have an analogy for our lives. There is a fulfillment to this psalm that is even more real to us because Christ has come. Hebrews, of course, is all about how Jesus is better, how he is better than anything in the Old Covenant because he came in fulfillment of it. And in chapter 3, here's what he says. Listen closely. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. That's God. Just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Because Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting is in our hope. Hebrews says Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was a good man, but he was just a man. Jesus comes as God's son. Moses was a servant. He was a good servant, but he was just a servant. Jesus comes as God's son, the perfect savior, the perfect Moses. How much more should we listen to him? Picking back up, chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's quoting from our psalm, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's Psalm 95 applied to Christians. And Hebrews says, now take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. How long is it called today? Is today today? When we get tomorrow, when we wake up and say it's today? Yeah, it's forever today, isn't it? As long as we're alive and breathing, it is today for us until Jesus comes and brings history to an end. So what are we to do? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Understand, Hebrews says, the very people whom God had had saved from slavery were the very ones he condemned to wander and die in the desert. Don't let that escape you. Therefore, he says, today, as the people of God, we should not make the same mistake. Hearing the word isn't enough. You have to hear it and believe it. And believing it is shown by your obedience to it. Think about this way. I can tell my wife, baby, I love you so much. You're you're, you're the best things I've ever had in my life. Of course I love you. But how do I treat her? Do I disrespect her? Do I make fun of her in public? Do I put her down? Do I think of her second and me first? Guess what? I can say I love you until I'm blue in the face. I can send her flowers and and kiss her. But my actions will demonstrate what I really believe about her if I really do love her. So it doesn't matter if we the people of God say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Do you obey him? Because if you're not obeying him, then you really don't believe what he said. And don't believe what he said, then do you really love him? That's what Hebrews is getting at here. 
This is why he also says we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now understand, it's not our perseverance that saves us. Christ saves us. But our perseverance demonstrates that we really have believed in him, that we really have been saved. As Paul says, we've passed from from death to life, that we are a new creation, that we have come to share in the eternal life he offers to sinners. Hebrews continues, Therefore, while the promise of entering this rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. What day is that? Today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall with the same sort of disobedience. Now what in the world is he talking about? What he is doing is drawing together the threads of this theme of rest. He says, look, we know in the Bible God creates in six days and what does he do? He stops working. He stops creating. It says he rests. Now, it doesn't mean he put his feet up and said, boy, that was tired work, man, creating the universe. You ought to try that sometime. That's not what he means. It just means he stopped his work. He stood back, and what did he do? He enjoyed it and said, everything's great. Everything is very good. And then he makes a promise. He makes a promise. I will provide a land and give you rest from your enemies. And guess what? The disobedient generation never entered the land, never had the rest, but the next generation did. Joshua led them in battle, defeated their enemies, and provided rest in the land. Now what happens? 500 years later, here's David, Psalm 95, and what is he still saying? Strive to enter that rest. And so Hebrews says, the rest in the land could not have been the ultimate rest that God meant. There must be a different kind of rest. And ultimately, what he's saying is this, the rest of creation, the rest offered to Israel in the land, the rest given to Israel in the land, the Sabbath command of rest, all of that is pointing forward to Jesus, the one who worked on our behalf so that we don't have to work our way towards God. Jesus lived the perfect life for us. He died a perfect death under God's wrath on our behalf. He came back to life perfectly, finally, as a foretaste of the future heaven and earth. We don't need to do anything to make ourselves right with God. We simply rest in Christ. So therefore, when it says today, if you hear his voice, the call is to again believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus and rest in him. That's what Hebrews says as Christians. When we read Psalm 95, that's what we should hear. We hear the word of God proclaimed and we rest in Christ. This is why he ends by saying what Pastor Richard read earlier. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
Remember the Savior we have in Christ who died and rose again and now sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. He knows our weakness. He knows our failures. He knows our sins. More than that, he can sympathize weakness. He can sympathize with that. Have you ever, have you ever been tempted to anger and succumbed? Jesus was tempted to anger. Have you ever been tempted to lust and succumbed? Jesus was tempted to lust but never succumbed. Have you been tempted to pride? Have you been tempted to some addictive behavior? Jesus was tempted in all those things. He understands that. And guess what? In understanding that, he stands ready to give you grace to move through that temptation, avoiding the sin and embracing godliness. Therefore, Hebrews says, believe the promise, trust in Jesus, and go hard after God's kingdom. Stop trying to to think that your own godliness is going to make you right with God and trust in what Jesus has already secured. And when you do sin, don't wallow in self-pity. Don't say, woe is me, I failed, I've blown it. No, look to Jesus and ask for grace. Grace of forgiveness and grace of strength to get up and get on with the work that we've been called to do. Today, do not ignore the word of God. It doesn't matter how much you enjoy singing or how emotional you get. If you don't hear the word of God and obey, you haven't really worshipped God. That's what the psalmist says. That's what Hebrews says. You may have worshipped a God of your own design, but not the God of the Bible. Today, today, pray to God and ask him for the grace that you need to listen, believe, and obey his word. This is the way to worship. Father, we are so thankful for Christ our Savior. We are so thankful that... While we can never save ourselves, O God, you have provided one who can save us to the uttermost. There is nothing that he did not accomplish that does not work for us on our behalf. God, we are so thankful for Christ. Help us to hear his word today. Help us to believe it, God, to trust in it. That we might find the motivation, the power to obey you. We ask all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.